0: Last week, we looked at this exact same passage and we focused on trusting in God's plan as Abraham is presented with this choice to stay where he is, to continue doing what he knows or to step out to a land that God will show him for a plan that God has laid out and is inviting Abraham into. As we look at this week, I want to focus on trusting in God's promise. And the two really go hand in hand. That's why we're in the same text. But what we're actually going to do this morning more so is we're going to look at the other passages of Scripture that provide commentary on this section. If you will, we're going to take uh, another window, uh, a sideways look into this happening and focus on the, uh, the test or the choice, I think is a better word, the choice between believing God's promises and trusting in what we see, okay? And faith in sight is an old, old contrast for Christians. In fact, Paul says in the New Testament, for we walk by faith and not by sight, right? That's the contrast that Paul lays out in the New Testament. But I want to walk through this passage today and call us to trust the promises of God. Let's read together, beginning in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, and the Lord had told, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let's pray one last time. God, it seems appropriate when we reflect on your promises that we come and claim one this morning. You told your disciples that once you left, you would send your spirit to guide them into all truth, that your spirit would be our helper that would teach us so that we would understand your word. And so we pray that that would be the case this morning. Please send your spirit to teach and instruct your people from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name amen. If we talk about this in terms of plot, it's relatively simple. There's not a lot of movement here. It's just a really big move, but it's only one transition. God said, and Abraham obeyed, right? It's, It's relatively simple, In fact, it's really only the beginning. If you want to know the rest of Abraham's story and the way that God goes about fulfilling these promises, you have to keep reading. You have to read the next 12 chapters in Abraham's life. And if you want to get all the way through to the fulfillment of those promises, you've got to read all the way up to the Gospels as God fulfills his word in Jesus Christ. But it begins with a simple idea. God said, Abraham obeyed just as God said. It's relatively simple. But in between those two things, between God's word and obedience, is is not just a command. Yes, God tells Abraham, go. But that's not all he says here. It's not, you know, a, um, a telegram. Go, stop, and that's it. Instead, the majority of what God says here is not about the things he's telling Abraham to do, but the things that he's promising to do for Abraham. Look again at how many times God says, I will, in this passage. He says, go to the land that I will show you, verse 2, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed Abraham's obedience is built on the foundation of God's promises In fact there's no reason for Abraham to go if God won't show him the land as he promised There's no reason for Abraham to go if God won't give him the land as he promised And there's no reason for Abraham to go unless God is going to fulfill his promise to give him not just a son, but a lineage, descendants, multitudes, a legacy. But when we look at the things that God says he will do, and then we look at life as it was for Abraham, when we look at things uh, in the way, if you will, of what God says he's going to do, we find obstacles. Okay, and there's two big ones that I want to show you just right here in the text. If you jump back into the previous chapter in chapter 11, I want you to notice what it says here in 1129. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Okay. And so when Abraham is given this promise that I will make of you a great nation, he doesn't even have a single child family. Right? And not only that, But as we saw here, look at verse 4 of chapter 12, Abraham went as the Lord has told him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed. That's an age that we generally associate with winding down and with retiring. And yet, Abraham's whole future hinges on what happens next. It's not behind him that his significance matters, it's in front of him. But at the same time, a 75-year-old man having a child with a barren woman is a staggering proposal. Be honest. Be realistic. Somebody comes and says, "Hey, you're going to have a kid. Here you are, 40, I don't know, 45, maybe as much as 60 years into your marriage, and you've never had a child." Your wife now is 65, as we'll find out in the next chapter. It's an obstacle. Okay. If Abraham wanted to argue with God, this would be exhibit A. Now, hold on a minute. You know, did you get the right address? I mean, my neighbor to the left of me has seven kids. My neighbor to the right of me has six kids. I have zero kids. Why are you talking to me? But there's a second problem. God says, come to a land that I will show you. And that is the only promise in this list that Abraham encounters immediately fulfilled. Because notice what happens. He says, come to a land that I will show you. Abraham starts walking and then look at verse six. Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. You see that? He says, this is it, welcome home, right? Abraham arrives, God fulfills step one of the plan, which is I will show you where I will, future tense, give you. But even here, we encounter another obstacle. Did you see it there? We read it right there in verse six. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. God says, come to a land that I will show you. And Abraham arrives there and he says, here it is. And it's occupied, Now, this isn't just a Monday problem that God resolves by the end of the week. It'll be 25 years before Sarah has a child named Isaac. It'll be 25 years of wandering around this land and living in the midst of the Canaanites as a foreigner, dwelling in tents, moving as a pilgrim, not always being wanted, by the way. In fact, when Abraham dies, the only piece of land he owns in this land that God said he would give him is the burial plot that he's buried in, right next to his wife. Sight and faith. What we see, what we experience, what we know firsthand, and what God says. That's the tension. And I know I really don't have to push this very hard because you all know it. You don't have to read very far in the Bible to come to a place where God says something and you go, I don't know about that. I haven't found that to be true. We don't have to encounter very many promises of God on our little promise of God calendar before we go, boy, I wish that one were true. Before we think, but what about But there's something about that contrast that provides the avenue or the venue or the space for faith itself. In fact, if we just see, we don't really need to believe in the way that the Bible is talking about. Faith requires trust. Not just trusting what's right in front of our face, right? This is way before the matrix. We don't have to worry about if this world is real but trusting that someone, because faith is always personal, will do what they said they would do. In other words, faith always exists in the gap. Now, I want to draw your attention to two New Testament passages that focus on these problems, the problems of sight, the obstacles. The first one I want to look with you at is Romans chapter 4. You know, a few weeks ago we were in the book of Galatians. There we talked about Abraham. That's what drew us to the Old Testament. Romans chapter 4 is a letter written later by the same author, the Apostle Paul, and covering somewhat the same ground, but in a more thorough way. But I want you to listen to here what it says, starting in verse 17. We're going to jump right into this passage about Abraham and his faith. Verse 17 of chapter 4 says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, and then it tells us about this God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall his offspring be. Stop on that little phrase there, hope against hope. What's the idea there? He hoped against hope. The idea is, despite the fact that there was no tangible, obvious possibility, it's not like Abraham played the odds and goes, well, maybe I'll have a kid. You know, there's a 0.00001% chance that Sarah could just get pregnant naturally. So, okay. No, there's no hope. And against that no hope, he hoped nonetheless. Look at it as it continues here. It says, verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Okay, Sarai's barrenness is an issue. But Abraham's not a young one himself. He looks at his body and he's basically just on hold to die. He looks at his body as good as dead and he considered it. Since he was about a hundred years old. I mean, that sounds like the type of joke language we use talking about our own parents, right? But here he's actually being accurate. He was about a hundred years old, okay? Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now, I want you to notice that phrase too, grew strong in his faith. Abraham doesn't have some sort of switch where he goes, God says I will give you a son, and he goes, okay, okay. And then he just believes it for the next 25 years. Keep reading. He wrestles with this. He struggles with this. In Genesis 15, God says, Hey, Abraham, how you're doing? My paraphrase. And Abraham says, I thought you said you'd give me a son. If I die tomorrow, which is on his mind because he just fought a pretty intense military battle. You can imagine how he's feeling. He says, if I die tomorrow, everything I go... Everything I have goes to my servant. My whole inheritance belongs to another man. He wrestles with this. In another place, as his faith was growing strong, he tried to do what God said he would do. And so God says, I will give you a son. And Sarah comes to Abraham and says, maybe what God meant is Hagar will give us a son. And so you sleep with my servant and then we'll have a baby. We'll call that baby our own and everything will be fine. A plan which, by the way, God rejects. He wrestles. He struggles. He grows in his faith. That's by design. Faith is not something you have or you don't have. Faith is something that has to be tended, matured, grown, strengthened. And side note, that's more of a God work than it is an us work. That's not something we do like we just have to grit our teeth and believe it until we trick ourselves. Everything Abraham goes through is God growing and tending and nurturing his faith. Why is it by the time that we get to Genesis chapter 22 and Abraham is told to offer up that same miraculous son as a human sacrifice that Abraham can trust God then? It's because God has proven himself trustworthy. His faith has grown as God has kept his word. Okay, but I want you to see this in verse 21 here. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is the best and simplest New Testament definition of faith. What is faith? Being fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. Now, do you see how we've created two categories here? What does Abraham consider and see? His body, good as dead. His wife's womb, totally barren. But what does he hear? He hears the promise of God. I want to be really clear this morning. Faith is not blind. Faith is not a call to close your eyes and pretend that nothing you see is real. Faith lives with open eyes and even more open ears. Faith takes the facts as they are, but interprets them through the faithful promises of God. That's what Abraham is wrestling with. That's what he's aligning in his heart. That's what he's going through. And as he goes, he grows in being fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised to do. And Paul actually spoiled the plot for us a little bit earlier. Who is this God that Abraham's just getting to know and trusting in? Look back at verse 17. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God whom he believed. Who is this God? The one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Do you see how that changes the interpretation of the facts? Fact abraham's as good as dead it's all right god resurrects the dead fact sarah's womb is empty and barren that's all right god calls into existence things that do not exist there was a time where the universe itself was barren and god said let there be light and there was light okay so the contrast again is not faith versus facts it's interpreted facts being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I want to show you another passage, and I want to show you that it contains the same things. This one from the book of Hebrews. Look with me at Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Notice what the land is there? Is it the land of fact? Is it the land of sight? No, it's the land of promise. By faith, he went into the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And then notice Sarah's included as well. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. How did Sarah conceive? Naturally? No, in faith. In faith, she had the power to conceive. Why? Because she believed God was faithful to do what he said he would do. Faith and promise. The thing is, we live in a time where we are shaped by the reality of what we see. And I can prove it in just one little phrase, it's called doom scrolling. right? The truth is, your eyes are a very successful portal to how you feel, what you believe, what you think. Okay. And we've cultivated this life built around screens. We've given, you know, 24 hour access to our minds, and we've bathed ourselves in these things. And it's effective, isn't it? When the chop was happening here, there was the first time where I felt the need to deal with disinformation. Disinformation I knew was disinformation because I was on the ground. I lived here. And I thought, it'll be easy to just enter into these conversations, diffuse some of the crazy, explain what's really going on. And three days into that, I gave myself seven days. That was all I was going to do it because I was worried this would happen. But three days into that, I'm up at 11 at night writing an angry, super long message to somebody I barely know. How did that happen? It's because it gets into your blood. It changes who you are. It shapes you. We are physical beings, and we are shaped by the physical world we live in. That's just status quo. That's just... What happens? Maybe it's not social media. Maybe it's the news. Maybe it's just the things in your life that have always been there and present, and they define, not just the reality out there, they define this. They define who you are. If what we're seeing is true here, how is it that Sarah came to bear a child? How is it that Abraham inherited the land? He did so as he constantly nursed on the words of God, as those were more present and more formative and given more place and spoke louder in his life than other things. And again, God is not in heaven going, Gosh, why can't you just see that I'm obviously who I say I am and stop struggling? The struggling is built into the story. Faith is always a wrestle. God's cool with that. But not all of us are wrestling today. Some of us have just walked away from putting the word in front of our faces, from hearing it spoken into our lives, and have given in to other voices. God's word will shape you. That's the tension of Abraham. Faith and sight. But there is another part, and it's part of the same tension. Again, it's not just the tension like in the movies where faith is a leap of faith. Where it's just something you just do once. And as soon as you jump, it's over. And you're like, now I'm standing on solid ground and I know it. For Abraham, it's a daily struggle for 25 years. The honest truth is, for most of us, we've never done anything for 25 years. It's a wrestling. But I want to give you a little bit more commentary. This first one from Genesis. chapter 21. Again, it's what, eight, nine chapters later, but it's 25 years later. But I want you to listen to what the commentator, what the narrator says to us. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Abraham starts his journey, barren wife, almost good as dead body, 25 years, God keeps his word. Let me show you another commentary. This one we have to move all the way out of the book of Genesis. We have to go all the way forward to the book of Joshua. And this time, not only do we move four books ahead in the story, we move 400 years ahead in the story. Listen to Joshua 21, starting in verse 43. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hand. Listen to this. Not one word. Of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. Yes, 25 years of waiting and wrestling. Yes, 400 years. And remember that a large portion of that is not lived in the land of promise in the midst of the Canaanites, but as slaves in Egypt. Not one word failed all came to pass. But again, sometimes, sometimes we get to live right here in Joshua 21, looking backwards and go, it's all happened, just as God said. But I would suggest to you that on this earth, in this life, that's the minority of the time. In fact, again, I would challenge you, read Hebrews chapter 11 and ask yourself this question. What is the author trying to tell us about our faith? And here's one of the clear points. It's about things that are to come and have yet to happen. It's about things that you will not experience here, but after death. It's about the fact that God will do what he said he will do. And somehow that transforms the present. See, here's the other problem we have with faith. Because faith is future-oriented, and that's right we think that the fulfillment of faith has to be future-oriented as well. Because faith is about what will happen, we start to bank on what will happen and we make that our hope, which is fine, but it has a tendency to push us into passivity or into just waiting to it be being done. Uh, it, It tends to say, well, when that happens, then, right? And we just put everything on hold. We halt all our plans and we go, all right, well, God, when you keep your promises, then I will dot, dot, dot. But that makes for one of the most striking places here in Genesis chapter 12, which probably is not striking to you at all, but it will be in just a minute. So, come to a land that I will show you. Abraham walks. This is the land that I will give you. Abraham stops. And what does he do? It says in verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abraham worships in the land he will be given, but does not yet have. The Canaanites are in the midst of the land, and here Abraham stakes a tiny little claim, just a stone altar, for the God who promises. Now, why is that surprising in this text? Because Abraham's relatively new to a relationship with Yahweh. And here's how travel plans worked in the ancient world. You come into a new nation, a new country, a new territory. The first thing you do, just like Abraham, is build an altar. But you build it to the God of the land you entered. If any of you ever have the chance to climb Mount Everest the first thing they'll require you to do before you march is give a little offering to the gods of the mountain. You're entering into their territory. You're now under their jurisdiction. Okay. It's the same here. Abraham walks into the land of the Baals, the god of the Canaanites. He's got new neighbors, and the first thing he does is he builds an altar to Yahweh. He doesn't just trust by faith and not by sight he worships it too he lives in it in fact although he lives in a tent he lives in the land for the rest of his days walking it to and fro setting up other altars and worshiping god see here's the thing we put our faith in something invisible but true faith is always visible This is what James wants us to understand, our last New Testament commentary. Look at James chapter 2. Let's pick up here in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works, says James. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart as works from works is useless? And then notice his illustration. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted for him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now sometimes this passage can feel in tension with what we were just learning about in Galatians, or the way that we talk about faith. Paul often makes such a contrast between faith and works. We read this and we go, wait, how does this fit together? But I want you to notice what he says in verse 22. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That statement about Abraham is from Genesis 15. The action that James points to is from Genesis 22. But how was it that that believed God and it accounted to him as righteousness was fulfilled, made manifest in action? Faith is completed in work. Even Martin Luther, the great reformer who stood against a misunderstanding of the church of his day and said, no, faith alone saves us said faith alone saves us but saving faith will never be alone what james is challenging us to hear is that faith is not demonstrated when god's promises are proven true faith is demonstrated while we wait it's shown today not tomorrow faith is not jumping out from behind the scenes and saying i told you faith is building an altar in the land of canaan Faith is about how we behave today. In other words, let me put it all in one sentence, okay? What have we seen this morning? We've seen that the faithful God makes promises to the people of God. And that the people of God live by having faith in those promises and faithfully living out their lives in light of them. The faithful God makes promises to the people of God, and the people of God live placing their faith in those promises, and they live faithfully in light of those promises. Okay. In other words, faith is when we live now as if God will keep his word tomorrow. And yes. There are Canaanites in the land. And yes, our wombs are barren and our bodies are old. And yes, it is hard to see where God is at work now. But this is the power of the promise. The power of the promise is not that everything God says is as he says it, it's that he will not let one of his words fail. As a pastor, in the days of COVID, where mostly what I feel is restriction and like life is all on hold, where everything feels like a waste, here's a promise that I've been dwelling on regularly. In Galatians, it says, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, if we do not give up hope, we will bear fruit. And that's a helpful promise, not just because it's the word of God, but also because the metaphor gives me something to wrap my head around. Because sometimes it feels like just sowing into the ground and then the ground is just mud. There's nothing there. But that's how farming works. Sometimes the way that we live out actively our faith is in waiting. Stand still, God tells Israel, and see the salvation of God. For them to just jump in the Red Sea and swim would not have been faith. Okay. But how do they make the decision? Should I stay or should I go? Should I swim or should I stand? Should I apply for another job or should I trust that God has something involved? It has to be faith. Faith not avoiding the things that are, not denying the reality that is. God is not in heaven going, I'm not actually going to look at what's going on because it's too scary and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it, so I'm just going to go for it. He meets us where things are. Nothing to something. Barren to birth. Death to life. Strained relationships to reconciliation struggle and slavery with the things that enslave us to freedom. For Christians, the only place to live is in the place of God's promises. And the only way to live is as if they will be proven true. And this is such good news Because the promises that God makes to us in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. Not one of them will fall to the ground. Not one of them will be proven true. Let's pray. Father, for each one of us this morning, I don't know what it is that is before our eyes that dominates our thoughts, that shapes our decisions, that fills our hearts. But I pray, Lord, that we would see that conduit and that we would reorganize and reorder our lives and our minds and our very hearts around your word. Pray like Abraham, you would teach us how to build an altar and live in the land of promise. To wait, to cry out for, to ask for, to desire, to wrestle. Make us a people who make faith visible as we trust that you will do the things you said you will do and live our lives in light of it. And as we worship you this morning, let us worship as those who are confident, fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Pray this in your name.